this podcast definitely has bad language because I just recorded it and shocked myself, like right up top and throughout. Pretty consistent, but now you know. It's Wednesday, February 13th, 2019 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, usually NPR is not the place to look for if you're looking for a hard-on. But the other day, there was an interview with Jerry George, former editor of the National Enquirer, and this happened. Well, I think that, um, you know, uh, pardon the vernacular, but I think uh, President Trump has, has had a hard-on for uh, for uh, Bezos for many years, uh, stemming from, you know, professional rivalry and uh, the ownership of the Post. So there it was. And they thought turning to the National Enquirer might somehow sully the air of NPR. Foolish them. Although it may have elevated the Inquirer, hard not to. According to Bloomberg, American Media Inc., the parent company of the Inquirer, led by the president's longtime friend, David Pecker, recorded a $31.5 million loss in the six months that ended September 30th. In other words, the Fire Festival guys had a more profitable quarter than the Inquirer. The Bloomberg article goes on to say that that $30 million, $31.5 million loss was a, quote, marked improvement over the previous year, but nonetheless brought the company's total losses over the past five and a half fiscal years to $256 million. AMI owed about $203 million more than its assets were worth. Wow. You think that would be enough to make me lose my hard on? No, back to hard ons. Before this interview... A search of NPR archives revealed that there was some talk of hard-on. There was this story. Brexit could create hard border on Island of Ireland. There was Jeff Sessions pushes back hard at Trump's comments made on Fox. And there was switching to middle school. Can be hard-on kids, but there are ways to make it better. And hard-on kids are just the worst kids. But I got to say, hard-on, the way the Inquirer guy used it, it, it always confused me. Like in that old 1970s cop way? Yeah, I had to transfer out of the 1-9. McCluskey had a hot on for me. So confused for so long. And when you're confused as a youngster about hard-ons, there are only so many people that you could talk to. So I went to a trusted adult. I went to my health teacher. I consulted a clergyman. I went to the cool guidance counselor who always turned his chair around and sat down leaning over what should have been the back so we could, you know, just rap. And they were no help. And then I heard two guys on a moving site say, oh, yeah, that guy, that Jagoff's had a hot on for me since day one. And that further confused me. Because after you jag off, why would you still? You know what I'm saying? Adult stuff sure can be confusing, Mr. H. What's that, Mike? Oh, yes, sorry. The Board of Ed said I got a model proper chair etiquette. So I had my back to you and was just sitting facing the window. I didn't see you there. It's all right, Mr. H. I'll be on my way. But I still don't know what it means to have a hard-on for someone. And then I found out. Who taught me? Well, it was a trusted friend who would never steer me wrong, who knew the real deal when it came to such things. Um, how'd you like it? I like the song. Yeah, what would you give it on a scale of 1 to 10? 10. There you go. All right. Yeah, what, what, honey? Uh, I'd like to know what happened to my dial-a-date. 
Oh, hold on. We'll uh, find out. Yes, it was Howard Stern. I would listen to his show, and one day they were saying that the program director, I can't remember if it was Randy, who is usually described as a hump, or the incubus John Hayes, or pig virus, but one of those bosses just had a hard-on for Howard. He was always out to get him, and then I got it. And now I could say, 30 years later, I listen to NPR and I easily process that statement without any confusion, thanks to what Howard Stern taught me way back then. What I'm saying is that radio is a medium with great roots that builds upon itself and I think continues and flourishes in this format that you're listening to. Podcasters, we stand on the shoulders, if not the hard-ons, of our forefathers and are richer for it. On the show today, I spiel about some late animals. But first, a funny, funny man, a man who you could say has a hard-on for laughter. No, please don't say that. Okay, Matt Bronger's people are imploring me to not use that phrase in the intro very well. Ladies and gentlemen, a man whose only relationship with the aforementioned term is that we all know the modern world is hard-on, a schlubby but kind-hearted dipshit. That's how he describes himself. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Bronger. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Matt Bronger has brought you many, many comedic efforts. He is out with a new special called Finally Live in Portland. He has a podcast where he gives you advice from a dipshit. He's the titular dipshit. But perhaps my favorite, he's been on Conan many times, many other late night shows, the Just for Laughs Festival. And he played it Just for Laughs, but also he touched us. But Matt Bronger, to me, uh, the best project he's ever done is like one or two podcasts ago, a podcast called Ding Donger with Matt Bronger. And (laughs) the reason is that it rhymes. And if you saw the name Bronger spelled, there are U's involved, no one would possibly know how to say it. So I thank Matt Bronger for that. And I thank him for coming on. Hello, Matt. How are you? Hey, man. Thanks for having me. So now advice from a dipshit. Mm-hmm. Now I have this. I don't know if it's a theory. Uh, people who do advice shows tell me that they get into it. Sometimes I don't even know why they get into it. And then a few shows in, they realized it's basically to give out one message. And they're just doing a version of this message over and over like Dan Savage's message. I mean, and he's brilliant and he knows mm-hmm. all about everything about sex. But basically his message is something like you are normal. Sure. Very, very rarely he will tell someone, get that checked out. But he's saying a variation over and over again, yes, you are normal. Mm -hmm. So what about you? What have you learned from advice from a dipshit? Your one one message in life is- My one message is all of us are dipshits. And to (laughs) use that power and to, to, you know, the thing is you just got to learn from it. You know, you can keep running into the wall over and over and over, but then you got to say to yourself, why do I keep running into this wall? Whatever that thing in your life is. But also at the same time, don't beat yourself up about- X dipshittery because the wall's doing that for you exactly, yeah. and you're going to have uh, more dipshittery in the future, maybe hopefully less. But you know, don't look back and go, "Oh, if only I didn't do this," or "Why did I do that?" It's it's just all it's all grist for the mill. And Got I feel it. like I mean, I have a bit in my act about how I'm a six for four stack of mistakes. How I have 
a tattoo on my body and I show it in the in the new special and I go, what do you guys think that is? I'll be and the crowd. It's a D. And, and, yeah, it's a D it's, for Detroit. And it's like, nope, that's a B. Like, I even got a tattoo that looks like somebody else's on a dare in a pool hall. Like, that is prime dipshittery. And now I, I, I love it. I think it's a hilarious, dumb tattoo. But anyway, I digress. Yeah, that's it. Basically... We're all dipshits. Yeah. The, the key is just to kind of learn from it. And because it's called Advice from a Dipshit, I, there's no danger of me getting mistaken for Dr. Drew or someone licensed. I always say if someone has a real problem, don't call me. But, or as his tattoo says, Dr. Brew. Right. But, so, okay, so I get what you're saying is that don't beat yourself up about the past. That is, so So if you've dipshat, yes. that's in the past. Nice. But how much are you telling people to try to change and how much are you telling people accept yourself and where is the line? Well, it, it, it depends from, from call to call. I do get a lot of silly calls. Uh, weird, just weird. That the, host of, that the former yeah, host I know, of I know. Guys, stop it. No, I love them. <laughs> After a while, I'm like, all right, enough of the serious ones. But, you know, I, I had a guy who was uh, who spent a lot of his life in the military, and he had found out that his father, who always told him all these military stories, was not in the military. Basically, his father had been lying Ooh, to him. Stolen valor. Yeah, but his dad was very old by that point. Yeah, exactly. Stolen <laughs> valor. And I was kind of like, you know, he was just like, you know, it 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 makes me sad, but he's always been duplicitous. And I think I just settled on, you know, maybe don't blow up his spot. You know, maybe just let him. He knows he was lying. He's got to deal with that. Yeah. And maybe don't absolutely shatter his heart in the yeah. winter of his, of his years, you know? And it was a tough one. It was such a <laughs> tough one to settle on because... You know, easy for me to say, I, my, my dad has always been incredibly honest, almost way too honest <laughs> when, I, when I was growing up. But like, you know, I, I, he was never abusive or mean. And so I never harbored any kind of animosity towards him. Whereas this guy, I'm sure, yeah. just wants to be like, shut up, dad. You know, you were never in the Marines. <laughs> and was, you know? was the tell that the war he kept talking about was the War of 1812? He, was was he, he said he killed a lot of dragons, <laughs> which right then set off like, hold on. Those I would aren't... maybe, if I was him, I would say, don't do it except if for yourself every once in a while you could slip in. And that was Guadalcanal, right? Or just <laughs> something only <laughs> yeah. someone that, wait a minute, which hill yeah. would you no, just... it, it, And that's the, that's the wild thing. It's just like anyone I know who's in the military, they can tell just yeah. talking to someone. Right. They, they can say one sentence and depending on how the person responds, yes. they'll be like, you were never there. Oh, it's so interesting mm-hmm. because probably the dynamic with the dad and the kid is the dad, if he was, you're saying, uh, kind of a, a hard ass, yeah. probably played out that he was very disappointed with his son yes. for not going into the very military. Very much a great Santino. But if this guy went into the military, he'd immediately know, wait a minute. Yeah, hold on. <laughs> That's not how you holster a rifle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's doing everything wrong. Yeah. His guns are hung wrong. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're all in strings from the triggers to the ceiling. Wait a minute. No one's cadence is I do know and I've been told. What? (laughs) You're goose stepping. (laughs) Only one army did that and it wasn't ours. (laughs) So yeah, so you say just live with it. Yeah, I mean that was a tough one to settle on, but I mean I think he was leaning towards that anyway. And oh, I, so sometimes you just figure out what people want to hear and, and give it to them. Yeah, as long as the, the the thing they want to hear is, they're correct. I mean, I've, I've had people that are like, I have had this, uh, this parent who I've supported my entire life, and they're very abusive and, and they've started getting mean to my kids, yet I'm supporting this person. This person, this parent of mine is demanding to move in yeah. with me because we're family and accept it. And I, I was just like, cut them off. Yeah. You don't, you don't, you've dealt with that long enough. Your kids don't need that poison in the house. They blew it. 
As you know? a, so as a self-identified dipshit, what happens right. when it gets so serious that you say to yourself, ooh, I don't want to fuck this one up. Like right. I kept, you, the, So the structure of the show is you usually use it as a jumping off point for improv and to make good jokes with your co-host. A your little guest. bit. Sure. Great. But you also, and you could give funnily bad advice if the stakes are low, but if the stakes are high, <laughs> yeah. you probably shouldn't do that. So what do you do to guard against that? No, you know, there's always two things I try to do. I try to keep it light. I try to say something uh, uh, completely way out and almost sometimes like too honest yeah. just about something that I went through, be it a weird sexual encounter or something really dumb I did or just extrapolate like an, an analogy to ridiculous heights. Uh, so just to keep it fun. But it, it's, you know, it, it's just as long as, as my show kind of makes you go like, oh, okay, things aren't that bad mm-hmm. and gives you – because I – I uh, have a great life, but I get incredibly depressed sometimes, just like anybody. And, you know, the 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 just the, the pain of existence, it gets to us all. And so I the thing that's always helped me the most is perspective. So, if, you know, the the best thing I can do is just give someone perspective. So that's that's my go to in terms of so they so they can see it, see it from another angle than. Oh my God, I'm I'm so fucked. So in the early going, I would assume that people who would call in were fans of your standup. But now, yeah. are they just fans of the show? You know, it's it's it has changed a lot to a lot of people that didn't really know who I was, but uh, really got into the podcast through word of mouth through friends. I do get a lot of people that are that are fans, and and that's very nice. Uh, and we are getting less. How do I make it in the biz? Questions uh, now, which yeah. is it's just there's. I, there's no answer. There isn't when, one. And I think when people ask that, they don't really want the answer. They no. want maybe they're saying like, "Can you help me?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's like uh, the old uh, overused um, comedian thing. If you ever talk to any any comedians and their friends or comedians they're around, they'll be like, "Oh yeah, I'm doing the Tonight Show," and then a comic will be like, "How'd you get that?" Like immediately, <laughs> meaning meaning, how do you have that yeah. and I don't? Yeah. Who do I talk to? It had nothing to do with being funny mm-hmm. <laughs> to make an audience laugh. Nope, nope. And the bookers of the show. Yep. Just uh, gave a dude a handy in the back of a flower <laughs> shop, and here I am. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it, there's no, you know, the analogy I've always taken is Dan Harmon's, which is perfect, which is like when you're a kid and you get lost, your mom always says, don't wander all over the place. Stay where you are. We'll find you. Yeah. And that's the only way. Just be get to the point where you're undeniably good and you're going up as much as you can until everybody knows, hey, this person's hilarious and they'll find you. Yes. People that can give you a career, managers, agents, you know, executives, la la la. They will hear of you. And and it's you know, it's really hard to get there and stuff. And networking definitely definitely helps, putting things online, la la la. But it is just you have to be ready for luck, yes. as Robin Williams put it. I think that one of the more frustrating things about comedy and a lot of uh, acting, a lot of performances is that, or just a lot of fame these days, that mm. there is a lot of people who aren't that talented who have made it, <laughs> but people who are undeniably talented, they don't always rise to the heights. You yeah. know, George Carlin was never able to get anything other than his stand-up, but his stand-up was the best ever. Yeah. So there is something meritocratic about stand-up, for instance, yes. or even like I do think doing something like hosting a podcast, you might not get a huge audience, but if it's really, really, really good, mm-hmm. you'll have success given this media landscape where they need so much content. Yeah, I mean, that's really it. I think you have to be in- incredibly entertaining and or interesting or incredibly provocative. And I'm not, I don't ever, uh, you talked about places having just one message. Yeah. You know, some 
podcast some radio messages is it's us against them, folks. Right. You know, right. Yeah, like that yeah. is their whole dynamic. Yeah. No, no, do not believe what they say. Listen to me. I am your leader, you know, <laughs> and that is a way that is a way yeah. to get an audience. But like, God, at what cost? Then you have to be that person. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be this demagogue. And, and uh, yeah, I think, you know, with with doing podcasts, there's a billion of them. And there's a billion comedians. And so there's really no magic door. I mean, there there is for some people if they uh, do incredibly outrageous things, say incredibly outrageous things, set off fireworks. I don't know. Whatever. But in the end, people are going to be like, okay, well, yeah, you wore a purple suit and your balls were hanging out and you set off an M80. <laughs> yeah. But are you funny? Yeah. Because we're still waiting for yeah. the joke here. You that three-minute three chunk on Ikea was solid. It was good. Yeah. It was good. It wasn't that personal. Uh, you were kind of talking about nothing. But. <laughs> yeah. All right. Here's my last question. This is one of the first jokes uh, of your new special. It's not a question. It's an accusation. Sure. Matt, you would eat the racist fudge. I believe you would eat the racist I, fudge. I wouldn't. You wouldn't? Well, yeah. I mean, just to, just to paraphrase for people that haven't uh, seen the special, I have a joke about how a, a lot of media outlets have kind of, in, in a sense, inadvertently or advertently normalized some racism, where it kind of like a guy's getting interviewed and he, he says all these normal stuff and then says... And I'm racist. And my 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 bit is, I don't care what the first thing you said is. If the second thing is, and I'm racist, I'm done. And it's, I say you could have a, a, a five a fudge that uh, makes you lose weight as you eat it. And I'll go on. And I'm racist. Fuck your fudge. That's that's the bit. But I wouldn't because I have. I'm not even that I'm noble. I have a crippling level of guilt. Yeah, crippling that I work on. I mean, when I go on the road, uh, I've started passing the time during the day. You know, we have all day to kill when we're on the road doing nothing by doing volunteer work. Wow. And uh, I, I do that because it's, it's nice and it's good. And I get to have these great interactions with these amazing human beings. But really, it's so I feel better getting drunk later. I'm being honest here. You know, like I, I lessen the guilt yeah. of or or and also the the guilt of getting to do what I I love and get paid for it, you know? So yeah, I would I would not eat the fudge because I would feel like such crap. Yeah. But that said, there are so many things marketed so well that I don't know what evil they come from that I'm right. sure I utilize. Right. So, <laughs> Well, maybe that's what makes the racist fudge work. Mm. You eat it. You know that it's a racist and you oh. feel so sick that maybe <laughs> it you puke eats it the up fat eat. cells away. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it eats the fat that's cells. Great. You can't that's keep great. anything down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's I'm... like Epicac for, for, for alcohol, <laughs> you know, but for like cheeseburgers and right, things. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, the racist fudge. And then the guy who actually runs the company Company, he's not a racist. He knows he has to take one for the team. It's a, he just knows he's helping humanity. That's how yeah. unracist he is. It literally is a chemical it's a chemical reaction to you not being uh, racist, right. but because it's made by racists, right. you know that and it and interacts. Maybe, and I don't mm. want to paint with too broad a brush, but I've seen a lot of Trump rallies and I have this yes. theory that – it being overweight tends to correlate with more conservative views. Oh little, my God. Being a yes. little angry at the world. Sure. So maybe this is his way to literally eat into Trump's base. Get them <laughs> to eat the racist fudge. They'll lose weight. Maybe they'll feel a little bit better about themselves. Uh -huh. They'll get out. They'll get the endorphins. Yes. We just need to swing like 80,000 votes in Wisconsin. Exactly. Exactly. If the racist fudge were just marketing Eau Claire. Mm -hmm. It could work. Yeah. I mean, the, the amount of, uh, of, of clan uh, members who have interacted with their friends first black person and been like, oh, yeah, this is all dumb. This yeah. is all d uh, idiotic dogma. 
Oh, okay. You I would know, think also being overweight correlates to being in the clan, those long, shapeless robes. Exactly. It's like a moo yeah. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. These are it's not real. Star Trek uh, uniforms, That's okay, right. that just mold to your body and show every flaw. <laughs> Which is the problem, as you talk about, with the cool new racists, mm-hmm. the alt-racists. Yeah, but, yeah. man, Spencer is not looking great. I mean, he's, he's still trying to wear the overtight pants and the, and the fitted, <laughs> a fitted blazer with a giant gut. It's just not a good look. It's not a good look, man. So Matt Bronger is uh, bringing the insight and possibly the non-racist fudge <laughs> to a platform near you on February 5th. His new special, Finally Live in Portland, will be kind of everywhere at once. Check it out. Check out whatever you're plugged into for that special. Good to meet you, Matt. Good to meet you, man. Thank you. And now the spiel. Rover is dead. Oh, no, no, no. It's not sad dog news. I don't want to lose you right up top. It's sad outer space robot news. The Mars rover Opportunity was on its last legs. Again, not little cute little doggy legs, but machine wheel legs earlier today. The golf-sized cart went silent. I'm going to say it's actually a golf cart-sized cart or a golf cart-sized rover. Probably not the size of a golf or a golf ball. But I'm not here to spend my time looking over how to describe the rover. I'm here to check its vitals. NASA says if there's no response from the rover today, it will be declared dead. Opportunity landed on Mars 15 years ago. These are the opportunity costs of such a venture. Look, it could have been Matt Damon out there on Mars. We got off easy, I think, as a culture. But indeed, the Mars rover Opportunity has died. Now, I was thinking about Rover, the dog's name, Rover. Also the dog's name, Fido. And when I say the dog's name, I mean not actual dog names. You will never meet a dog named Fido or a dog named Rover. And yet these are the quintessential dog names. It is odd because when it comes to other quintessential names, the rest of them all exist in real life. There are white girls named Becky. Some have good hair. There are super fans of things and their name's Stan. In Arkansas, Bill Clinton went after the Bubba vote. And guess what? A lot of guys who voted for him were nicknamed Bubba. You will find Italian-Americans who drive IROCs named Guido. There are Guidos among us. There are cats named Fluffy. One made news a week ago. Fluffy's owners found her unresponsive, buried in the snow. Body temperature was dangerously low. But this cat has nine lives. Look at Fluffy now. The frozen cat that warmed our hearts. But Fido is the dog who never comes when called. Rover 2, because he doesn't exist. It is very odd. But don't worry, Rover died. But that almost necessarily means that no dog was actually hurt in conveying this news bit. On the other hand, we do have a dead tiger in England. Two tigers at the London Zoo. There was a male named Asim, a female named Malati. The BBC reports, quote, After spending time apart in a tiger enclosure to get used to the new arrangement, which was a mating arrangement, the two were introduced to each other, but tensions quickly escalated. Tensions escalated. Like describing Georgian naval maneuvers in the Bosporus. Perhaps Malati would pull her ambassador, but instead, Asim mauled her. Like a, uh, like what's a good analogy? Like a tiger. Like doing exactly what a tiger does. Ferocious jungle beasts got a jungle beast. The London Zoo officially said, quote, Our focus now is on caring for Asim as we get through this difficult event. You know, we all mourn in our own way, perhaps in Asim's case, 
by murdering a potential mate and then never thinking about it again. Asim, whose name the zoo said means protector in Arabic, it's another line from the BBC story, ironic, or it would be if the fact that names Arabic and the idea of irony are concepts held by us humans, not the ferocious beasts who have teeth and claws and sometimes kill each other. The reaction to all of this was swift and ferocious and oh so human, and I don't mean it as a compliment. Uh, Twitter user wrote, why on earth would you introduce two tigers after only 10 days? I wouldn't introduce my cats to a new cat in such a short time. Unbelievable. Unprofessional cruel. Unprofessional. Yes, I like that assessment. I mean, what gives zookeepers the idea that they know how to keep zoos? Because I have a cat. You know, come to think of it, did that Mars rover really have to be decommissioned? I ask because I have a Roomba and, you know, it's pretty, pretty much the same thing. Your experience with your cat is not applicable. Do you want to know why? It's this. Your cats are not tigers. If your cat were a tiger, maybe I'd listen to you. But it's not a tiger, so I won't. You know what? Let's play Tiger Not a Tiger to assess the following claims and the logic thereof. BBC headline, London Zoo, quote, was well aware of tiger death risk. Yes, they were, because what we're talking about are tigers. Here's another headline, CNN. Tiger kills potential mate on first date. No, it wasn't, because what we're talking about is a tiger, and tigers do not go on dates. This was almost the entirety of my reaction while hearing about this sad story. Well, sad to me, I'm not a tiger. My general thesis here is that we have a human world and a tiger world, and the standards from one cannot apply to the other. I do think the human world has basically destroyed the Sumatran tiger world. I mean, it literally has, and it's literally the least we can do as inhabitants of the human world to try to do something to keep the remaining 300 Sumatran tigers from dying out to keep them in zoos. But everything else was just tiger death through human lens. I read the entire statement put out by Catherine England, chief operating officer of the uh, ZSL London Zoo. Now, these, these professionals, these are the ones who recognize the strict lines between animal instinct and human emotion. So here she is writing about the efforts to get the two tigers acquainted, which seemed to be working because they were exhibiting chuffing. Here's how England describes that. Chuffing is a friendly noise that tigers use to greet each other, usually during courtship or when a mum is greeting her cubs. It indicates interest and curiosity. It might be the human equivalent of saying, hello, lovely, how are you? Sorry for the Dick Van Dyke accent, but when it says hello, lovely, I can't say that in American. Hello, lovely, how are you? Occasionally, the tigers will chuff at their zookeepers too, and those are moments they all treasure. The tigers do not treasure them because the tigers are tigers. There is a lot of sentiment all throughout this explanation, and I guess it was strategically a way to humanize the zookeepers who were under a lot of scrutiny by, say, know-it-all cat owners. England, writing about the female tiger, Malati, said that I knew her since I joined ZSL in 2013, and I was enamored with her, as everyone else at the zoo. She captivated everyone who worked with her. She was beautiful, majestic, spirited, and every inch a tiger. Yeah, well, that, that right there is your problem because so was Asim. 
And he did that thing, that very tiger thing about not giving a human shit about her beauty, majesty, or tigerness. I mean, there was one being at the zoo who was unlikely to be blown away by a medium-sized female tiger's tigerness, and that is a large male tiger in possession of more inches of tigerness himself. The zookeeper England goes on writing of the fatal encounter. But in the blink of an eye, with no obvious provocation, except for the fact that they were tigers, they turned on each other, and our years of experience told us it was beyond normal. Wow. Just think what what the rest of us, without that kind of training and experience, might have made of the dead female tiger on the ground. How would we have processed it? Well, it's good you have your expertise, because I got to say, I, as a tiger novice, I, I would not have known how normal it was to have a dead female tiger lying on the ground. She goes on, the rest of the day passed in a blur, but the key for us was Asim and his needs. Zookeepers don't take a Hippocratic oath like doctors, but they really all do in their minds. Asim had been through an ordeal himself, and we focused on ensuring that he was cared for and comfortable. Asim was fine. Do you want to know why? Yeah, you guessed right. He's a tiger. I really was saddened by this to deny my reaction and the general reaction of most people who heard about it is to deny how my species deals with the concept of tragedy, which we invented. But it does seem like if you want to keep this species from dying out, and the only way to keep this species from dying out really is to keep them in zoos, then you're going to have what we humans experience as tragedies and what the tigers experience as tiger. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. Their gentle chuffing sounds indicate a gleefulness. Is that, well, no, hold on. Actually, Daniel's choking on a walnut. And here's the trivia inspired by Ding Donger with Matt Bronger. We say ding dong for a doorbell here in the U.S. What do they say in Iceland? And why do I know? <laughs> TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, and she has had her troubles with McCluskey as well. It wasn't just me. The gist. I gotta admit, I'd eat the racist fudge, but I swear, I swear to you, I would bypass the ableist taffy. Because we all have our lines. Long, stretchy, saltwater lines. Umpur, depur, dupur, and thanks for listening.